We're back in Romans 3 this morning, and uh, you've probably noticed that I'm struggling to make my way through these few passages. I think I've read these verses at least four weeks in a row, but there's so much here. And I was thinking, going back through it this week, I think I used this illustration while we were back in the Hebrew or the letter to the Hebrews, but Romans 3 is, is an awful lot like a diamond. I mean, there's so many different ways and so many different angles that you can look at it and every perspective that you approach it with, there's always a new brilliance and a new glory to be seen. So there's a lot here. But Paul is revealing to us really the ultimate purpose of the gospel. And I'm absolutely fascinated how he does this because he kind of drops the ultimate purpose of the gospel, puts emphasis on it grammatically, and then he pulls back out and goes right on talking about how it affects us and doesn't come back around to God really in fullness until he gets to the end of chapter 11 in verse 36 where he offers praises to God for his glory and then he turns right into the therefore and puts all of it back into application for us. And I found Steve doing this to me over the last several years. He'll, he'll give me just enough breadcrumbs to kind of mark the path for me to ponder, to let me go down it on my own to figure out things. And I can tell you without fail, if you're faithful to follow the breadcrumbs, there's always a treasure to be found if you'll stay faithful on the path. But I want to give you more than just a few breadcrumbs this morning. I, I really want to demonstrate to you in these passages what is the most magnificent thing that we see in this gospel, and that is the glory of God. Now, I want to give you a preface as well, because I'm, I'm really wanting you to understand this. I, well, we're 23 sermons into Romans, and this has been my favorite as far as preparation goes. And I pray it will be communicated hopefully half as much as how God has blessed me in preparing for this. So I'm really striving for your understanding this morning, and I really want to go slow. But whenever we see God act, when we see God do something, we see God's character, and therefore we glorify God. So let me say that again. When we see God do something, we recognize the greatness of our God and then we in turn glorify God. So what I want to show you this morning is I'm just going to give you, we're just going to watch the last scene of the movie, if you will, and then I'll backtrack and work my way back to the last scene. But here's the last scene. The greatest thing that God has ever done to glorify His name is the gospel. It is the greatest act of God throughout the history of time and beyond time. It is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in the gospel, God demonstrates that glory in three ways. He manifests it to us in three ways. And so hopefully by the end of this morning's lesson, you'll see how this is the greatest glory, God-exalting thing that God has ever done. So... Let's begin, though, all the way back and walk our way through this, understanding that the final result and the purpose of everything, and I mean everything, is the glory of God. So when you consider man, let's think about yourself and you ask that age-old question, what is the purpose of me or what is the purpose of man? Why did God create man? 
I think it can't be communicated any better than how it's communicated in the Westminster Catechism. Now, I know many of you catechize your kids, and all that means is you teach your kids the essential doctrines of our faith, right? And you use a catechism to do that. Well, in the Westminster Catechism, and I think a few of you have used that, the right answer or the biblical answer is as to what is the purpose of man. They stated in this way, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. So you don't ever have to worry about what's your purpose in this world or what's your purpose in life. Your purpose is just the same as every other man, woman and child ever been born. It is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. I told you Paul would come back to the glory of God in Romans 11. And this is what he says at the very last verse before he turns the corner in Romans. He says, for from God and through God and to God are all things to him be the glory forever. Amen. That's like Paul's conclusion to Romans before he says, all right, therefore you do this. He says, listen to everything. To God be the glory. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, he, he puts it in an even a, a little more practical way in verse 31, if you're taking notes. Paul says, whatever then you eat or you drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Which means it doesn't matter if you're going to the paper this in, in, in the morning, or if you're going to the water board in the morning, or if you're going to do surgery in the morning, or if you're going to the pharmacy in the morning, or you're going to teach school in the morning. None of that matters because the purpose behind all of that is to go glorify God in the morning. If you're staying home with your kids, the purpose in that is for you to glorify God in the morning. It doesn't matter the details of it. The purpose and the result of it is always the same. Whatever we do as the children of God ought to glorify God in everything. Now, that's the chief end of man, but it's even bigger than that. In fact, the chief end of creation is the very same. I think Tyler has this verse, Psalms 19, and I want to read it to you, but I want you to see the very purpose of creation. In Psalms 19, verse 1, this is what David writes. The heavens are telling of the glory of God. He says their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Day after day, creation pours forth speech. Night after night, it reveals knowledge. Yet there is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is never heard. Yet their line or their communication goes out throughout the whole earth and their utterances to the end of the world. That is the very purpose of creation. It is to glorify God. Did you see the moon last night? It was remarkable. I mean, it was as full and as bright. And the whole purpose of that was to glorify God. Do you realize that? We're at the time of the year where we get up in the morning and try to make our way to the coffee pot before the sun comes up. And standing in the kitchen, because that's where you'll find me waiting on the coffee and the breakfast, right? Looking out at the window, the sun rises up over our farm. I mean, right in the middle of our kitchen window, it starts just breaking the sky. And it's been so beautiful the last few mornings as it's beginning to cool off. And you see that sun coming up and it starts racing across the field, getting to the back of the house. And the whole purpose of every bit of that is to glorify God. I think Cody's probably going to go back to South Korea if I don't stop working him to death. But every chance I get, I either have him up here doing or he's at my house doing. 
And so just the other morning, we're out there at 7 a.m. in the fields working through our trees and doing those sort of things. And it was such a beautiful, crisp morning. And Cody noticed that on the far side of the field, there's three trees, three different colors. I think one of them was yellow, one of them was green, and one of them was starting to turn red. And we were just amazed at that. And you're like, why in the world would God do that? God made those three trees side by side, those three different colors, in order that we might stand there and glorify His name for what He has done. We worked several hours and went back to the barn. We pulled up a lawn chair and we sat in the midst of the barn because if you sit in the barn, that north wind cuts right through that barn. And after getting so hot and feeling that cold wind on your face, we just had opportunity to glorify God for sending the wind in that particular way in order for us to feel it, be relieved by it, and glorify God through it. It is the entire purpose of everything God has done. Every star in the sky, the purpose of that is to glorify God. It's the absolute purpose of all things. That's why I get so fired up about creation. You want to get me in an argument, just mention that God did not create all things and I'll get my feathers ruffled up like nobody's business. And it frustrates me that so many Christians are falling away from the truth that the original way that God glorified His name, the initial way, was that He created all things for His glory. It's the wonder of creation. But it goes deeper than that. The chief end of all things, whether they be in time or beyond time, the purpose of them all is to glorify God. Revelations 5 communicates to us a truth that is after time. Let me read this to you. And every created thing, notice, which is in heaven and on the earth, spiritual, physical, it does not matter, everything under the earth, on the sea, all things in them. I heard them all saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. It doesn't matter. Whether it's in heaven or under heaven, whether it's on earth or under the earth, everything that God has put a finger to, the purpose of that is to glorify God. And one day, every bit of it will glorify His holy name. And that will be a great day. So here we come to this question then. We come to the gospel. What's the chief end of the gospel? Of course, I know what you want to say. And it would be right, but I've set you up for the right answer. And we say the chief end of the gospel is to glorify God. But communicated from the majority of the pulpits today, the chief end of the gospel is the salvation of men. You have to be careful here. Because we so want to put us in the middle of everything. And so we say, oh, the purpose of the gospel is to save. No, that is not the purpose of the gospel. The purpose of the gospel is to glorify God. The salvation of men is the means through which God accomplishes His glory. We're an end to the means, or a means to the end, rather. We're a means to the end. Our salvation serves the purpose of glorifying the Father. It's not the other way around. And so this morning from the text, I want to show you that the chief end, the purpose of the gospel is to glorify God. Now, anytime I get on the subject of God's glory and God's character, I send you to one place. And I think you could probably guess, but I won't put you on the spot. The man actually asked to see God's glory. Now, who did that? Moses. Moses literally says, God, I want to see it. We're talking about it this morning, but Moses says, I want to see your glory. 
And you have to understand when Moses said that, he wasn't talking about with his eyes because he had already been in the midst of God's glory on the mountain. And I would imagine he was surrounded by a blinding, glorious light. So he wasn't communicating, I want to see something else with my eyes. He had already seen with his eyes. I would imagine everything a man could possibly see and still live. And so what Moses, in effect, was saying, show me what you're really like. I want to know the essence of God, and that's the way he communicates it. I want to know the glory of God. So Moses asks the question, show me, or, or, or makes the request, show me your glory. And the way that God reveals his glory is he communicates his character. Now listen to this. I know you probably have this memorized, but Exodus 33, Then the Lord passed by in front of Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands and who forgives iniquity, transgression and sin, yet will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. It's fascinating. Moses asks for glory. God communicates character. And I'm convinced, and I take you here all the time because I'm convinced this is, if not the certainly one of the most significant moments in the entire Old Testament where God says, you want to know what I'm like? I'll just tell you what I'm like. And he just lays it out. Now let me tie something else into that, or put something else into that picture frame for you that I want to carry along this morning. God's glory was revealed to Moses in the context of judgment. And think about this. Why was Moses even off the mountain to begin with? Because he was in the presence of God. Well, he had to come down because the people of God had fashioned a calf and they were worshiping a false god. And so Moses has to come down off the mountain. And while he's down from the mountain and God's about to judge his people, Moses calls out for a vision of God's glory and God reveals his glory in the midst of judgment. Remember that. Hang on to that because we're going to see that more than once. So that's the glory of God communicated in words. But we, we move from God communicating it to Moses to an Old Testament that is full of the display of God's glory through the deliverance of His people from their enemies. Let me say that. We've heard God say it, and now we're going to see it because God's going to demonstrate His glory by rescuing His people from their enemies. Okay, We're going to move from saying to seeing. If you're taking notes... Exodus 14, you don't have to go there because I'm about to take you somewhere else, but let me just read it to you. Exodus 14, you know the context very well. They're standing at the sea. Pharaoh's behind them. God works in a miraculous way, splits the sea. They walk through on dry land. God kills all their enemies by drowning them. And now I want you to hear the words of Moses. When Israel saw... The great power which the Lord had used against the Egyptians. The people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Then Moses and the sons of Israel sang this song to the Lord and said, I will sing to the Lord for he is highly exalted. The horse and its rider he has hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. The Lord has become my salvation. This is my God and I will praise Him. See what happens? God reveals His glory. 
through a tremendous act of delivering his people and the people turn around and glorify God. That's the pattern throughout most of the Old Testament. Now, had you turn to Second Chronicles, so run there with me. It's my favorite story. If you ever get to preach, I'll let you use your favorite story. The Second Chronicles chapter 20. This one, I'd just love to have been there for this one. This is absolutely amazing to me. Again, God's going to act. He's going to deliver his people and they're going to turn around and glorify their God. Second Chronicles chapter 20, verse one. I'll skip around a bit, but I'll let you know. Now it came about after this that the sons of Moab, the sons of Ammon, together with the Munites, came to make war against Jehoshaphat, which was the king of Judah. Then some came and reported to Jehoshaphat, saying, A great multitude is coming against you from beyond the sea, out of Aram. And behold, they are Hazazon Tamar, that is, the Engedi. That's where they're from. Jehoshaphat was afraid. He turned his attention to seek the Lord. In fact, he proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. So Judah gathered together to seek help from the Lord, and they even came from all the cities of Judah just to seek the Lord. Look at verse 12. They prayed, and this is the end of their prayer. O oh, our God, will you not judge these people? For we are powerless before this great multitude who are coming against us. Nor do we know what to do, but our eyes are on you. And here's my favorite verse in the whole story. All of Judah was standing before the Lord with their infants, their wives, and their children. They've prayed for deliverance, and they're just standing before God waiting on deliverance. I wish God would find us so faithful as that right there. But notice verse 20. The next day rose around. They rose early in the morning, and they went out to the wilderness of Tekoa. And when they went out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Listen to me, O Judah, and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Put your trust in the Lord your God, and you will be established. Put your trust in His prophets and succeed. And when he had consulted with the people, he appointed those who sang to the Lord and those who praised Him in holy attire as they went out in front of the army and said, Give thanks to the Lord, for His loving kindness is everlasting. They're marching out to the battlefield, being led by their worship leaders, singing thanks to God. And they haven't even got to the battlefield. Verse 22, when they began singing and praising, the Lord set ambushes against the sons of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, who had come against Judah, so they were completely routed. Verse 24, when Judah came to the lookout of the wilderness, they looked toward the multitude, and behold, there were corpses lying on the ground. No one, not single one of them, had escaped. He killed every member of all three nations who had attacked Israel. Their bodies were laying on the ground. The only thing that they ever did was sing. Now look at the response in verse 27. Every man of Judah and Jerusalem returned with Jehoshaphat at their head, returning to Jerusalem with joy, for the Lord had made them to rejoice over their enemies. And so they came back to Jerusalem, the city of God, with harps and lyres and trumpets to the house of the Lord. It happened again. They had a great need. They called out to the Lord. God acted. 
delivered his people from their enemies, and it resulted in the glory and praise of God. The Old Testament is filled with instances where some enemy would attack his people, God would intervene and rescue his people, which ultimately resulted in the people glorifying their God. But let me ask you this question. What caused the enemies to attack in the first place? Almost every time it was the sin of God's people. They would sin. God would send an enemy in judgment. Hopefully, most of the time, much of the time, the people would repent, return to God. God would pour out His judgment on the enemy and it would result in the glory of God. But we've still got this tied together. We can't separate glory from judgment because it's found in all of these instances. God reveals His glory in the midst of God judging. Okay? Now, as far as enemies go, and you know, I could go on tirelessly about the enemies, but as far as enemies go, who is our greatest enemy? What is our greatest threat? It's ourselves. Our greatest enemy, our greatest problem, our greatest threat is sin. Remember last week we walked through David? And I, I, I bet if you had the opportunity to sit down with David and go, Okay, David, let me ask you. Were you more afraid of Goliath? Or were you more afraid of your own sin when you committed adultery with Bathsheba and murdered her husband? And I guarantee you, David, look you square in the eye and say, listen, I wasn't a bit afraid of that giant, but I was terrified at what I had done. A giant, I threw a rock. My sin, it almost killed me. And in fact, if God had not had been gracious to me, my sin would have killed me. Because the judgment for my sin is death. Adultery, death. Murder, Death, I should have died. And so the greatest thing that David ever faced was David in, the own, in his own sin that resided in his heart. And it's the same for us. And so we understand what God says when He says, for the wages of sin is death. So sin and death, without question, is our greatest enemy. So knowing our greatest enemy, let me ask you this question. Where is our great deliverance found from our great enemy? It's in the gospel, right? God is going to act on our behalf and rescue us from our greatest enemy. And we're going to turn and glorify His name through it. But here, let me ask you this question. Since we've been tying judgment and glory together, do we find judgment in the gospel? I know you know the answer to that, but I still want to show you that. Do we find judgment even in the gospel in the rescue of our own souls? But since we're on the subject of sin, let's sit down there for just a while and, and talk about sin. Because sin, I think we would all testify, ruins everything. The terrible effect of sin is almost immeasurable. And oh, how we underestimate the effect, the damaging effect of sin. Because if we truly estimated how horrible sin is, I'm convinced we wouldn't find ourselves in sin so often. Because it ruins everything. If it hasn't ruined your life in some regard, I know that you know someone's life who has been absolutely turned upside down, even ruined because of sin. 
And the frustrating thing or the damaging thing about sin, it just doesn't affect you, the sinner. It affects everyone around you. Sin destroys your life and most often it ruins your family's life. But it's even bigger than that. Not only does it ruin a family's life, it can ruin a church's testimony within a certain community. Sin from one individual can ruin our testimony in Macedonia, Alabama. Sin is more destructive than the wake of a hurricane passing over land. Sin absolutely ruins everything, but it's even bigger than that. It's bigger than you and it's bigger than your family. It's bigger than churches. Sin ruins an entire society. And I don't have to say much about this, but just look at our country. You know the reason that we are like we are. It's the judgment of God on our sin. And every election time we come around, can we not find one decent, honest man to lead us? And the answer to that is no. And I can't find any record in Scripture where God relented unless the people repented. And since I don't see repentance sweeping through our nation, the judgment's just going to continue to drive us into utter foolishness as if we weren't already there. It's embarrassing how foolish this country has become because we're led by fools. And that will continue because it's a result of our own sin. Don't point fingers. It's our own sin that's caused all of this destruction. But it's bigger than societies. It's even creation. It's not just people. It's everything. Romans 8, 19. I think Tyler has this for you. I'll read it to you slowly. Notice creation, how sin has affected it. Paul writes, For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For even the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption. Even all of creation, everything God's done, it's in slavery to corruption because of sin. I can't imagine the moon last night was in slavery to sin, but it was in slavery to sin. I can't imagine seeing it be set free, but it's going to be delivered from its corruption to sin. All of creation is going to be delivered at the return of Christ from its corruption to sin. Sin ruins everything. So let me ask you this. What do you think? Does sin ruin God's glory? Could sin be so powerful that it could ruin God's glory? I want to show you this in the text. You're in Romans, I hope. I may have led you all over the map, but turn with me back to Romans chapter 2. In verse 23. Romans 2, look at verse 23. You who boast in the law, that's the Jews. You who boast in the law, through your breaking the law, do you dishonor God? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. You see that? God gave the Jews His law and they took the law 
and they broke the law. And as the Gentiles who did not have the law watched them receive the law and then break the law, in response to that, mocked God because his own people couldn't even walk in obedience to God. God says, what you have done has blasphemed my name. You have diminished my glory among the nations. But it's not just the Jews, it's the Gentiles. Look over in chapter 1. Look at verse 22. Professing to be wise, the Gentiles, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Verse 25, for they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served some creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Paul can't stand this so much that at the end of this he has to glorify God by saying who is blessed forever. Amen. But do you see what the Gentiles did? They completely ruined the glory of God because they exchanged the glory of God for some ignorant, stupid, if you will, idol. They completely exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped some false God. And God says, you've completely diminished. You've ruined my glory. You've exchanged my glory for a lie. So we've got the Jews diminishing or ruining the glory of God through their sin. You've got the Gentiles diminishing and ruining the glory of God for their sin. But what about us as individuals? Do, does our sin affect the glory of God? I left off a passage last week. Tyler has 2 Samuel 12 for you. Nathan's come to David for this. And you can listen if, if it doesn't pop up. 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 13. Nathan brings judgment on David. Then David says to Nathan in response, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan says to David, The Lord also has taken away your sins. You will not die. Verse 14, I left it off last week because I wanted it for this week. However, God says, because by this deed you have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. I mean, we've gone from entire people groups ruining the glory of God to one individual ruining the glory of God and giving those who don't believe God opportunity to blaspheme the name of the Lord. What about your sin? Do you think your sin can leave a mar on the glory of God? I know mine can. And I know yours can. Because as the children of God, we carry the testimony of God with us wherever we go. And if you're going to talk like the world and you're going to think like the world and you're going to act like the world, you're diminishing the glory of God before whoever you stand. Sin ruins the glory of God. But let me add this final word, initially. Initially, not finally. If you have your Bibles, turn with me now to Ezekiel 36. Mark Romans because we'll come right back. And in the wisdom and in the glory of God, I want you to see what God does. Ezekiel chapter 36. I know we've been here before, but I want to start reading in verse 16 and read down through a few verses. This is the part that excites me so much. 
and just leaves me absolutely mouth open, wide eyed, astonished before our great God. Ezekiel 36, notice verse 16. Then the word of the Lord came to me, says Ezekiel, saying, Son of man, when the house of Israel was living in their own land and they defiled it by their sin or their ways and their deeds, their way before me was like the uncleanliness of a woman in her impurity. Therefore, I poured out my wrath on them for the blood which they had shed on the land because they had defiled it with all their idols. Also, I scattered them among the nations and they were dispersed throughout the lands according to their ways and their deeds. I judged them. And when they came to the nations where they went, they profaned my holy name because it was said of them, Oh, these are the people of the Lord, yet they have come out of his, his promised land. But I had concern for my holy name, says God, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations where they went. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord, it's not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you went. I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when I prove myself holy among you in their sight. How's God going to do this? He explains in verse 24. I will take you from the nations. I will gather you from all the lands. I will bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness, from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will be careful to observe my ordinances. How's God going to fix His glory? Through the gospel. You see, the initial effect of sin, as you're making your way back to Romans 3, the initial effect of sin ruins God's glory among the nations, but the response of God to sin through the gospel is the most God-glorifying thing He's ever done. Let me say that again, because this, this is the part you've got to leave with. Our sin ruins God's glory, but only initially. Because God's response to our sin in sending His Son to die in our place is the most God-exalting, God-glorifying thing that will ever happen before time, beyond time, and in time. It is utterly astounding as what God has done for us. He has taken even our sin and glorified His name. So, what's the ultimate Goal, what is the ultimate purpose of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ? It is to the glory of our heavenly Father forever and ever. Amen. Now, I can just say that and we can be done, but I don't want to do that. Because you still got to ask the question, well, how? You need to ask the question, how? So you can understand just how God has done this. Now, this is what Paul drops on us, and he doesn't expound on it, but Romans 3, 25 and 26, Tyler's going to put them up here for you, and I highlighted the most significant parts. But verse 25 says, Jesus Christ, whom God 
put forth before all nations, displayed publicly as it says. He put it before everyone as a propitiation, a substitutionary dead in his blood through faith. Notice, why did he do that? This was to demonstrate God's righteousness. Because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time. That's the purpose of the gospel, to demonstrate the character of our God. So we're back to it. God acts, God demonstrates his character, and his people glorify his name. And I'll say it again. God has glorified His name in two ways in this Bible that's just really unspeakable. The first way He did it is through creation. But the second way He did it is far more God-glorifying, God-exalting. And that's through the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ where He recreated all things. And He did everything to demonstrate it, who He was. He is a perfect and righteous God. Now, again, He does it three ways. Two of the ways are given right here at the end of verse 26. So that, Sahina, it gives you the purpose, so that God would be both just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And I'll move through these quickly because this just teaches us how. The first way God demonstrates His glory like no other way in the gospel is from this first truth, God is just. And we've talked about this and I'm going to repeat myself and I've done it for the last three weeks. God in the gospel demonstrates His justice. Now listen as I walk through this. God is righteous and everything He does is perfect and righteous. God's law is righteous and perfect. When God's law is broken, God's righteous character demands that the requirements of the law be satisfied. And since the law requires death as a penalty of sin, you can do the math. Someone had to die. So since God is just at Calvary, God pours out his judgment and wrath on his own son for all nations to see. God put forth publicly his son as a propitiation for the sins of the world. And God's righteousness is magnified because God is so just to satisfy his law. He put his son to death. And all the nations fall silent because this God that they had been mocking has proven himself once for all that I am just. And I will not tossle a hair and pat somebody on the backside and just forget about the things we've done. Every single sin that ever has been committed fell on the Lord Jesus Christ. And God proved His justice in that. So the righteous requirements of the law were met and God was glorified. So listen, here we go. I couldn't find a word. I searched forever. This is the best I could come up with. In the awesomeness of God, the final result of sin was to the glory of God. Even sin. We spent several weeks on Wednesday night talking about evil. That's the toughest thing we've ever done. And when you get to the end of evil, you know what you find? God's glory. You get to the end of evil and you find God's glory. But listen, when we get to the end of sin, we find God's glory. 
Because God poured out His judgment on sin. Last, or secondly, God is the justifier. Just like it says in verse 26. God is the justifier. So in order to rescue His people, this God who has made Himself known as the great deliverer of His people delivers them by sending His Son to die for them. And so through the death of His Son, God sets us free. God justifies us. God is not only just, I will judge, but God is the justifier of His people. And He set us free through the death and the judgment that He poured out on His Son. Now, just as a side note, you know, I, I just got one more point, but I'm not going to leave this on the table. Just consider this as dessert of the meal. So what is the most God-exalting thing God has ever done? The gospel. What is the most God-exalting thing in the gospel? Let me show you that. Keep something there and run with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 12, and I'll show you the best part of the Gospel. Or at least what God considers to be the best part of the Gospel. John chapter 12, verse 20. And then I'll make my last point and we'll be done. I told you there were three. I'm, I'm in the middle of two. John 20, notice with me verse 1. Now, on the first day of the week, uh, I'm sorry, John 12. What did I tell y'all? 12? I was in 20. John 12, verse 20. I'm sorry. John 12, verse 20. I thought, no, Mary's not there. Now, there were some Greeks among those who were going up to worship at the feast, Gentiles, if you will. These then came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and they began to ask him, Sir, we, we want to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew, Andrew, Philip, and Philip told Jesus, and Jesus answered them because this apparently was a sign to the Lord Jesus when the Gentiles wanted to see him. Jesus answered them saying, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be what? Glorified. Now notice when in verse 27, the Lord says, Now my soul has become troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Father, what does it say? Glorify your name. What's the greatest thing God's ever done to glorify his name? The gospel. What's the greatest thing in the gospel? What's God's favorite part of this gospel that glorifies his name the most? And it's when his son in faithful obedience hung himself on Calvary for our sake. God said, that's my favorite part. That's where I glorified my name the most. That my son might die in obedience to me for the sake of you. And even the Lord Jesus himself knew it. Because when he came to die, he says, what am I supposed to do? Run from Calvary? No, this is the purpose I was born. And he looks at the father and he says, I'm going to Calvary. You glorify your name. It's the most wonderful picture in Scripture. Of the most wonderful truth we'll find. In fact, turn to John 17. I told you this was dessert. Look at the prayer that Jesus prays. It's absolutely remarkable. I'll just read a couple of verses and we'll go back to my last point. So Jesus is praying right before and he says, Jesus spoke these things and he lifted up his eyes to heaven. and He says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son might glorify you. Verse four. I have glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. 
Man, that's upside down wisdom for us, isn't it? We think in the death of Christ, God could not be glorified. But in the death of His Son, He was most glorified above all things. So go back to Romans now and we're finished. Last thing. So I told you, gospel, most glorifying thing. How? God proved Himself just. He punished sin. God proved Himself the deliverer. He justified His people. But in the very design of the gospel itself, God glorifies His name. And I don't want you to miss this. Look at Romans 3, verse 27. Paul asks this question. Where's boasting at? Who can brag? Oh, bragging, boasting. It's been taken off the table. By what kind of law of works? Never. No, by law of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith. No works involved whatsoever, apart from works. Is God a God of Jews only? No, He's not only the God of Jews, He's also the God of Gentiles. Since indeed God will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith is one. Let me explain and you'll get this very easily. Salvation by our efforts steals God's glory. Listen, if there was anything you could do, you would steal God's glory. If you could pay a price for your salvation, you're robbing God of His glory. If you could bring good works to present to the Lord that He might justify you, you're stealing His glory. It cannot be done. It will not be done. And everyone who thinks that they're going to present themselves to God based on their own goodness will find themselves eternally in hell because you violated the glory of God. There is no boasting. God has protected His gospel. He's protected His name. And He's protected His glory. And so the only way that you can glorify God in the gospel is by receiving it through faith and faith alone. Meaning, there's, there's nothing I can do, Lord, but trust you. I've got nothing. Nor would I bring anything if I thought I had something. There'll never be a person in heaven who can boast. It certainly won't be David, right? And it certainly won't be you. And it certainly won't be me. Because there's no boasting in glory. All glory goes to the Father. God is just. I proved it, he says. Glorify my name. I have justified my people. I have proved it. I have set you free. Glorify my name. And I have designed a gospel where people are saved solely and singularly on the basis of trusting me and what I have done for the sake of my glory. Is this not wonderful? Can you not see the glory of our God? There's only one thing left on the table to do. And that's for you to ascribe glory to God. And as far as great goes, and I've said it all morning, this is the greatest, this is the greatest. The greatest thing that you can do to glorify your Father is to turn from your sins and put your faith in His gospel. You'll never do anything the rest of your life more God-exalting than that right there. I don't care if you go on to be a pastor or an elder or a deacon or 
teach Sunday school for 50 years, or I don't care, there'll never be a moment in your life where you will exalt the glory of God more than the day that you turn from yourself and your sins and put your trust in Him. And all of heaven will erupt in glorious praise to God. So even if you're a child this morning, you're hearing my words, glorify your Father in heaven, turn from your sins and put your faith in Him. But as far as being a child of God, you can glorify God with every word that you speak, with every thought that you have and everything that you do. You can glorify the Father who is in heaven, who has saved you and filled you with His glory. Let's pray.